0: are in part four. This is kind of the last one of a series called Christmas Songs. We, we started off, how many of you like Christmas songs? Okay, here's a question. How many of you are already tired of Christmas songs? Like, you've been worn out? Not too many. Maybe a few you wore out. I, hey, I have been Christmas music non-stop at my house since, what, Thanksgiving at least? We even go out, and we went out the day after Thanksgiving to go, and I go and do this real manly thing where I cut down my own tree it's one of the few manly things I do all year. And uh, and so anyway, but the other day, like, I think it was just two days ago, she's like looking at the tree, I was like, I think we get the tree too early, babe, it's like falling apart already. I'm like, that's why we need to wait, and we need to wait to put on Christmas songs so that I still love them by the time Christmas gets here. So anyway, Christmas songs are playing, uh, if you notice, the radio stations have flipped almost... You know, they're getting hotter and heavier on their Christmas rotation. And I love some old school Christmas songs. So what I did was is I decided I want to take some of the rich traditional Christmas songs and kind of talk about them and play on the ideas and the, the, the reason why these men and women wrote these great songs. So we started with this song that was called Emmanuel. And Emmanuel, we talked about how like the whole purpose of the gospel was not to necessarily get you back to heaven. But the, the goal of the gospel was to get you back to God. Like, just to get to heaven and to avoid hell, that's not what the gospel was about, but it was rather about being reconnected with the God who made you and loved you. It was God with us. In week two, we talked about how, like, the idea that Jesus was actually born into an atmosphere of chaos, but he brought peace. And how, like, you and I, even though our lives can be chaotic, that you can actually have peace in the midst of the storm, that peace is not the absence of conflict, but rather peace is the presence of a person. And then last week, we we had a really cool message. We talked about how the wise men came and really modeled for us what pure worship is. Worship with no ulterior motive. They weren't trying to get something out of Jesus. They weren't even thanking him for something he'd already done. But purely because of who he was, they began to worship God just because God is awesome. This week, I want to read you a new one. This wasn't in our song set, so I want to read you the main lyrics of it. This is a song called The First Noel. It says, the first... The fir- you want to sing along with the fir- first Noel? The angels did say, was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay, in fields where they lay, keeping their sheep on a cold winter's night that was so deep. And then they say, Noel, Noel, Noel. Now, Noel just means this. It's kind of French for the word Christmas. I mean, that's it. <laughs> There's nothing fancy about it. But if you ever sing that song, and you're like, what's Noel? That's where it comes from. And actually, the root of that is, is that it's from Latin, and it literally means birthday, which when you put the two together, you get Jesus, birthday, baby Jesus, 8 pounds, 6 ounce, baby Jesus, Jesus. But this is the cool part right here that we want to focus on. It says, on a cold winter night that was so deep, Noel, 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 born is the king of Israel. And I love that part because it reminds us and it brings me back to the story. And we read part of this story and we looked at part of this story in particular last week. This week we're going to read kind of the same story but focus on a totally different person and character. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go to Matthew chapter number 2 and read along with me as we read these words. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 2, it says, Now after this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. That right there is huge. That right there, we would gloss over that, wouldn't we? If we were reading our Bibles, we'd be like, oh, this is just the, the precursor. This is the thing that they were talking about just so they knew what was going on. This has huge ramifications. The Bible says, now after this, Jesus was born where? In Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. It says, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born what? King of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship Him. Now we kind of know a little bit about what happens next, especially if you were here last week. We know that the wise men, they slip out to go see Jesus in Bethlehem. They bring what? Gold, frankincense and myrrh. They worship baby Jesus. But they realize that Herod is up to no good. that Herod wanted to find out where baby Jesus was because he was a nervous guy, And what he was nervous about was the idea of losing his power. Because all of a sudden, these magi show up and say, oh, no, there's a new king of the Jews. We know you're supposed to be the king of the Jews. There's a new king of the Jews. And it freaked Herod out. So he made these plans that he would say, okay, we're just going to wait for the wise men to find Jesus. And then when we find little baby, little eight ounce, six ounce, baby Jesus, we're going to assassinate him. But the wise men figured out. And Joseph was warned in a dream. And listen to this. If we skip down, we won't read that whole part. But skip down to verse number 13. It says that when... They had departed. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, that out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious How I many know, like, this is, the, this is the part of the story that we try not to read? This, I won't be reading this on Christmas Eve, people. We'll read the nicer part. Little baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger there because there was no room in the, in the inn. And I'll read that part. But the reality is, is that Matthew puts this story in here on purpose. And I, I think there's a number of different reasons why. What he actually is, is showing, too, is that Jesus is the new Moses, there's a, there's a new savior, there's a new redeemer, there's a new person gonna lead you out of bondage. And so during the time of Moses, if you remember, Pharaoh was doing the exact same thing. It was a slaughter of innocents. They were killing all the baby boys so that the Jewish people couldn't raise up an army of men and eventually overthrow or overrun or run free. And so Jesus is born in that same setting. But the fact is, is that there's some fascinating things that, that go on and in that very, first, that very first verse, it says this. It says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, During the days of King Herod. Let's pray before we begin today. Father, we pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us a little bit this morning. That you would challenge us. You would help us. God, you would convict us. But God, that you would heal us and help us. Give us strength, Lord God. And above all, let us walk out of this place knowing you more, God. That is our prayer today in Jesus' name. And we all said? Everybody say Herod. Herod is kind of the the, the key component to this story. When you look at what's going on, the very first verse sets the tone that says, hey, I just want you to know that there's a huge stark contrast going on, that you have the birth of the Messiah, the birth of the Savior going on, while there's another guy that's in charge, and by the way, his name is King Herod. And if you know anything about King Herod, the, the text doesn't actually say a whole lot about King Herod. But if you, if you really study history and you find out, there's a good bit. Re- Josephus writes probably more about Herod than any other guy. And he writes some real fascinating stuff. We know this because of all the stuff that's kind of left behind by Herod. Herod was, well, Herod was a weird guy. He was fascinating, he was ruthless, he was a tyrant. He's, he's kind of odd because he's born an Arab. If you look at his family line, he's born an Arab. But politically, he's Roman because he's the king of Judea, but he's underneath Caesar in Rome. And then he's culturally Greek, and he tried to make Jerusalem kind of a Greek city, and that never did, really did work out. But because of, of who put his grandfather in charge and started this whole thing, religiously, he's, he's Jewish. How many know you'd be weird too? If you were, if you were an Arab by birth, and, and Roman politically, and Greek culturally, and Jewish religiously, you'd be weird. You know, You'd be kind of different too. And so here's this guy, and he's got all these different affiliations, and 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 he grows into power again because he's put in there. His grandfather was originally the king of Judea and was placed there. And and all the different dynamics that go along that show you that King Herod became he became the tyrant that he's known for today. He became neurotic, he became paranoid. As a matter of fact, all through his life, he had ten different wives. And he had all these different sons, but he murdered a couple of them. As soon as they became even close to seemingly political rivals, he just murdered them. He he was actually ordered them that they be strangled to death. And then the mom that kind of staged and set the whole thing up, he killed her too. He's got even this weird story where at the end of his life, um, he's so sick and that they debate on what kind of illness he had, but he was so sick that he actually attempted suicide, but one of his guards stopped him. But when word got out that he had committed suicide, it it got spread the wrong way. So the prince that was to be the king went ahead and said, hey, get me out of prison because Herod had put him in prison. Get me out of here so I can take over the throne. And then when Herod finds out that he was released from prison, guess what he did to him? Yeah, he killed him too. So you find this guy that is just absolute. What you find is this, is you find two different people going on here because it's this stark contrast between Jesus and between Herod because you have this contrast of fear versus love, don't you? Like like Herod ruled with fear. Like if, if you cross me, I'll kill you. If, you. if you cross me, I'll have you put in prison. And he works all these different power moves, which again, he has this different thing too. It's power versus humility, like the way that I'm going to lead is through force and through power. Like that's the way I'm going to lead. So if you get in my way, as a matter of fact, again, just the thought of a Messiah being born so made him paranoid that he sent an army to Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem it wasn't more than two or 300 people. So it wasn't this huge city. As a matter of fact, if you think about two or 300 people in a town, how many kids and boys would they have underneath the age of two? It's probably not that many, but even then he's so paranoid, he goes and he kills all these baby boys. And so he, he, he's the self-ascribed Herod the Great. That was the name he gave himself. And you can do that when you're the king. You can call yourself whatever you want. Nobody's going to say anything to you because you just killed him. So you can say, I'm Herod the Great. And then you have Jesus that shows up. And he doesn't work from a fear structure. He works out of love. He doesn't work out of a power structure. He actually works... Out of humility. As a matter of fact, this is what Jesus said. He goes, this is what he said about himself. He goes, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, he goes, I am humble and gentle of heart. Learn of me and you will find rest for your soul. So you see Jesus shows up and he doesn't make people afraid. He loves them and he doesn't work for force and power. He works out of humility. And then the other one, the, the, the thing that Herod's most known for is the fact that he was this incredible builder. Like if you know anything about his life, like the, the, the great fortress Masada, Herod built that. Even the temple that Jesus and all the Jews worshipped in, Herod rebuilt that and did the biggest rebuild and made it amazing. Josephus said it was the most spectacular building in all the world was the second temple that Herod had built. Then you've got all these different things. So like his greatest feat was this palace that he had built that was literally about two and a half, three miles away from Bethlehem. And it sat up on a huge mountain. It was called Herodium. And it was, this, it was, it was actually considered the most spectacular palace in all of the Roman Empire. And so again, you find in that first verse that here comes little baby Jesus who's born in Bethlehem during what? During the days of King Herod. What they're saying is this. Don't forget that when you lived in Bethlehem, you would have looked two miles that way and on top of the biggest mountain you could see was the greatest palace in all of the Roman Empire. And there sat on it a tyrant, a man who is self-proclaimed king of the Jews and Herod the Great. And here you find this stark contrast because Jesus didn't do any of the things that Herod, like Herod built monuments. He built ports. He built fortresses. You know what Jesus built? Disciples. Like Herod amassed armies, amassed wealth, Jesus amassed influence. So you find things like this that, that one builds for his own self exaltation, the other comes to earth in self condescension. This is this stark difference, this stark contrast. And, and at the end of the day, you find that Herod is mostly forgotten about. Many of you don't know anything about Herod. You'd have to look deep into the history books to find out all the things that he did, or you have to go visit the places that he built. But yet everybody knows about Jesus. Whether you believe in him or not, you know about Jesus. And you find that Jesus has this lasting legacy. As a matter of fact, you know what's fascinating? Is is the the quote that Napoleon Bonaparte has about Jesus sums up this idea, this contrast that we're talking about. Listen to these words. This is what Napoleon said. He says, well, then I will tell you, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have founded great empires, But upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love. And to this very day, millions will die for him. I think I understand something of human nature. And I tell you, all these were men. And I'm a man, but none else is like Jesus. Jesus was more than a man. I have inspired multitudes with such an enthusiastic devotion that they would have died for me. But to do so... Or, but to do this, it was necessary that I should be visibly present with the electric influence of my looks, my words, and my voice. When I saw men and spoke to them, I lighted up the flame of self devotion in their hearts. Christ alone has succeeded in so raising the mind of man toward the unseen that it became insensible to the barriers of time and space. Across a cross of chasm of 1800 years, Jesus Christ makes a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. He asks for that which a philosopher may often seek in vain at the hands of his friends, or a father of his children, or a bride of her spouse, or a man of his brother. He asks for the human heart. He will have it entirely to himself. He demands it unconditionally, and forthwith his demand is granted. Wonderful. In defiance of time and space, the soul of man, with all its powers and faculties, becomes an annexation to the empire of Christ. All who sincerely believe in him experience that remarkable supernatural love toward him. This phenomenon is unaccountable. It is altogether beyond the scope of man's creative powers. Time, the great destroyer, is powerless to extinguish this sacred flame. Time can neither exhaust its strength nor put a limit to its range. This is it which strikes me most, and I have often thought of it. This it is which proves to me quite convincingly the divinity of Jesus." That was Napoleon. Napoleon, who was a student of time, of history, of kingdoms, empires, kings, and leaders. He looked at them all. He said, I looked at Alexander, and I looked at Caesar, and I looked at the great ones. And the one that fascinated me the most was Jesus. Because of all the kings who ever had kingdoms, it was Jesus, who somehow broke out of needing force and power and needing prestige and needing might. He didn't need any of that stuff. He built his kingdom on a completely type of, a different system. It was, a, it was a system of love and humility and self-sacrifice. It's pretty fascinating to think about, but, but here's, here's where we're going today. I said all that just to get us to this one point. That in the story of the birth of Christ, you have the contrast of two different kings. One who made you, one who forced you, one who threatened you, who, one who murdered and killed to maintain power and control. And then you have one that did the exact opposite who gave away who served who was humble and still ask you for everything So here's my question Is jesus Really the lord and king of your life? It's a different kind of a kingdom though. It's not the type of kingdom that we think about It's not a kingdom of four. You don't have to You're not forced to, you're invited to. And before you're even invited to, you are given the greatest gift of love and freedom that the world has ever seen, and yet he still invites you in. It's a fascinating thing to think about. Listen, the word Jesus is Lord is repeated 740 times in the New Testament. Did you know that? It's this idea that Jesus is not the king that we typically think about the Bible says he's actually the king of kings and the Lord of lords, meaning like you got all the kings of history, but you got one that rifles them or stands above them all. And you got all the lords of history, but you got one that is above them all. But here's the question I have for you, because we have a problem in what I want to say is modern Western Christianity today. And it's that most of us, we like Jesus as savior. We like Jesus as teacher. We like Jesus as miracle worker. We like Jesus as my homeboy. We like Jesus in so many different ways. You know the one we struggle with the most? Jesus as king over my life. As a matter of fact, the word Lord, if I say Lord, see I had all these happy sermons leading up to this. This is the, this is the one in a series has got to bust you out of your mold. This is the one. It's the Greek word kurios, and it literally means this: the supreme authority of your life. The controller. And how many know, like, this is what Jesus already is? Like, let me bust your bubble real quick here. You don't have to make Jesus Lord. He already is Lord. Whether you've accepted him or received him as that, that's on you. But he's already Lord whether you like it or not. The question is this, is will you make him Lord and controller and supreme authority over your life? Because guess what? I get it. It's difficult. But many of us, we come into a church, we know we need forgiveness. We say a prayer and we say yes to Jesus. But we typically say yes to Jesus as, like I said, teacher and as savior and as, as friend I like Jesus as friend, that's awesome. I need a friend in heaven. I need a friend that knows God really well. But what about Jesus as Lord? Because here's what the Bible kinda teaches, is that Jesus gave everything, gives it for free. But then there's this unique exchange that takes place. Let me explain what that exchange makes sense like. Um, My wife is right here on the front row and uh, we got married when I was only 21 years old, which is probably way too young. And um, the reason why I know that is because I was uh, an aloof husband, and I didn't know what I was doing, because 21-year-olds really don't know what they're doing, I think, most of the time. And so anyway, but, but I, I went out and, and tried to get a ring, and I've since, you know, gotten her another ring. And But anyway, how many know, like, when you give her the ring, there's an exchange that takes place, right? So I went out, and I borrowed money, and I mustered up money, and I, like, this is what you need to know. When I was 20 years old, I made, um, how much did I make? 250 dollars a month I make That's not a joke You don't be laughing at me on the front row here I I was an intern at a church Making like 250 bucks a month And then I turned tables on the weekend Just to survive Because I was just working at a church For basically scraps And this is when I was like 19 and 20 years old So I didn't make a lot of money So I went out and bought The best ring That money could buy You know what I'm talking about Like I said That's why I had to upgrade Later on down the road But so the day that I proposed to my wife, we had, I was a youth pastor. I worked on a youth staff. We had a youth ministry of a couple hundred kids and we had this big event going on. And the big event was this cool thing where I was actually dressed up as a tux and was hosting this big ceremony awards thing with banquet and all kinds. It was really, really cool, but I was in a tuxedo and I knew I was gonna propose. So we went ahead and set it up in advance. And she was kind of like one of the volunteer leaders and was orchestrating some of the other stuff. And so she had no idea what was going on. And so in the midst of this big, huge event with two, 300 teenagers there, I come, I stop the whole show, and I come out to the front, and I say, hey, would Tara Lee please come out here, and then, and then I got the microphone, and I got, it was really cool, we got it on videotape, and I should have showed it, Um, I look like a child too, that's what's so funny, like, if you think I look like a kid now, I look like a child, I was 21 years old, and so then I do my whole bit, and then I get down, Uh, now, how many know, like, did that ring cost her anything, did she pay that ring, buy that ring, put that ring on credit, did she... Did that ring cost her anything? Y'all are not sure. It's like I've been doing too many trick questions at church lately, or something. Did that ring cost her anything? No. Here's what you think, though: as soon as she said yes, it cost her everything. That's the exchange of salvation, isn't it? Is that Jesus paid it all, and freely offers you the greatest gift in the world? And then when you say, yes, and I do, it requires that you give everything. We don't see it that way, though. We have this idea that, like, Jesus is Santa Claus. He just gives stuff out and gives stuff out. And there's naughty people and there's nice people. And y'all get coal and y'all get cars. And that's the way the Lexus commercial works. So anyway, and so... I want to tell you that like the divine salvation exchange is a little bit different than that because Jesus literally paid it all. And he gives this incredible gift. But in return, he asks for everything. Because guess what? Babe, can, can you, you want to tell the gospel truth? It's cost you everything, hasn't it? And I'm sorry for some of that. And so, but I love you. That's the gift of so, so here's the, here's the dilemma though. Don't we all face that dilemma? Like, it's like some of y'all didn't know this required everything. This is a relational commitment that requires everything of you. And some, so some of us hold back. Some of us just want to date Jesus for years and years and years. We want to live together, have our cake and eat it too, but I don't want to put the ring on. So we, we have these reservations and these restrictions and these problems. And, and I get it because some of us are, let's be honest, some of us don't want Jesus is Lord of our life because we. How many of you are self-proclaimed control freaks? Are there any of you out here? You're control. Yeah, yeah. There's some of you. I love that you admit it, uh, but you got to you you got to drive all the time. You don't let other people touch the remote control. You got to have everything just right, just your way. When people don't do it right, you nitpick and point out and do. You, you got to be in control. And so the idea of Jesus in control doesn't sit real well with you. Then, then there's other people that are just afraid. How many ever thought if, if I make Jesus the Lord of my life, I'm afraid? You're like, what will he do to me? What will he do with me? Where will he send me? Because some of us, our worst fear is that if I give Jesus my life, he's going to tell me to go live in Africa and, and, and eat bugs and help people that speak different languages I mean, than me. That's your worst fear in the world. What, what would Jesus do with my life? And so, so you're afraid. Some of you, some of you are like, like me, just know, but you know better, don't you? Like, why would I give Jesus the Lord of my life when I already know better? Like, I'm a genius. I'm smart. I can figure this out. I worked hard. I know what I'm doing. Why would I give Jesus control? Some of you, this is, this is where I fall into the trap of not making Jesus Lord. Some of you are aloof. You ever just, why are you laughing? You're just aloof. How many of you, like, just start living life blindly and then get down the road, and when it all falls apart, you're like, why didn't I give that to Jesus? It's not that you didn't want to, you just didn't even think about it. Some of you, it's your personality. Not only you control her, some of you are like type A dominant. I'm going to do it my way. Hate to be told what do. To, you're rebellious. Let's just put it like that. How many out there just self proclaimed? like don't being told what to do, just a little bit rebellious? The wife just pushed his arm up. Um, and and part, part of this, how many of you are American? Just raise your hand if you're born in America. You were born in America. Yeah, y'all are rebellious too. Um, Hey, th- think about it like this. Think about it like, how did America begin? I just did the American Revolution with my son in history class. And so like, well, why did it begin? Because we, we didn't like people on the other side of a big ocean telling us what to do. We didn't like the way they taxed us, the way they treated us, the way we didn't have representation. We didn't like the economics that they were giving. We were like, we don't. We We're done. Back up off us. We want to be free. And we, we, just, we just gave them the boot, which, again, I think some incredible thing, because I'm not saying that was bad, but like America was born in this idea of we don't want you telling us what to do anymore. And then like, how many of how you born on the West Coast? Born on the West Coast? Yeah, yeah, you know what you guys are? You're pioneers. Y'all aren't settlers. Y'all are like, no, let's go do something new. Let's go find something new. Let's go, you know, take something on. Let's go, and we don't like to be told what to do. We want to keep going and doing and going and doing. And so like, the idea of Jesus as Lord is foreign to many of us as Americans. Do you know why it's foreign to us? It's because we don't have a king, we have a what? And half of us hate him at every point in history, don't we? Half of the country hates the president at any given point in time right now. So he's like, half of y'all love him, half of y'all hate him, that's just the way that it is. So you know what happens? Every four years, we can vote you out. And we got governors, we'll vote them out, shoot, and we don't like them, we'll skip the voting process and kick them out early. We don't like you telling us what to do. We don't like the way you lead. You're out of here. We've got mayors. We vote them in. Everybody gets voted in and voted out because we live in a what? We live in a democracy. So many of us, we, we look at Jesus and we think, I'll think about that. Jesus, you want me to do what in my dating? Hmm, um, think about that. I'll have, maybe I'll take a vote. Let's take a vote. so we do, we think about Jesus being the Lord of our life. And and I'm telling you, that means everything. Like Jesus should be the Lord of your marriage. He should be the Lord over your anger issue. He should be the Lord over your finances. He should be the Lord over the way that you raise your kids, the way you conduct your business. He should be the Lord over your, your moral decisions. He should be the Lord over your Friday night and not just your Sunday morning. He should be Lord over all or really he's not Lord at all. That's just the way he works. He's like, look, I either got everything or I don't got it all. That's just the way that it works. And so Jesus is saying, I want to be the Lord of your life, and we're like, mm, I'm gonna think about that. Cause see, what do you do in a democracy? You vote on people, you debate issues, you try to reach a consensus, you debate the issues. But a kingdom is different. And in a kingdom, the king's reign is absolute. His word is law, and it is non-negotiable. That's a kingdom. How many know that's foreign to us? We don't think like that. We have a hard time thinking of setting one person as the supreme authority over our life. But I'm telling you, he wants to be Lord of all. So here's where we're at. We end up with different people at different stages of life. Number one is this, is we got people where Jesus is is Lord, not at all. And some of you are like that today. You you got duped into being here because somebody told you it's Christmas and you got to go to church. You'll be here on Christmas Eve too because it's Christmas Eve and you got to go to church. And so you're here, you got tricked in here, you got invited into being here. But like if you sit back at your life, you're like, I don't consider Jesus. I don't look at the Bible. I don't consider what God says and God is the supreme authority of my life. He's none at all. And guess what? I'm so glad you're here today because this is just step one in determining, you know what? It may be worth it to consider this thing. Then we got number two here. This is where most of us kind of fall. This is the partially surrendered life. This is where most of us stand in terms of our relationship with God. Because many of us... We, how many know when we get sick, God is awesome and He is a healer and we want Him in our life. But then all of a sudden, like somebody says something about being a good steward and being generous or tithing. And we're like, hmm, I'm going to vote on that one. We're going to have to debate the issue. Find consensus. We're going to think about that. We're going to call a panel, maybe do an investigation. We're going to think about these things. We think about... Our personal issues, our, our moral issues, our, our dating life. We think about that and we think about like, oh, so the Bible says and God wants me. Well, I mean, that's just culturally unacceptable. That's crazy, huh? Supreme authority over your life. This is, this is where I'd like you to read a scripture with me if you could. There's, there's a great scripture here. And um, it's taken from a specific version of the Bible. Um, I'm looking for it in my notes. Here it is. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. This is taken from the partially surrendered version of the Bible. Um, It says, trust in the Lord with some of your heart. Lean on your own understanding, and in some of your ways, acknowledge him. And then you can make your own path straight. You ever been there? Don't act so holy up in here. You ever done that? are like, well, I trust you, God, with my salvation, with my internal destination in life, as if you had somebody else better to go to. As if somebody else could get you into heaven. So you went to Jesus with your salvation, but you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa with my money? Hands off. Hands off. This is my stuff. Do you know how hard I work for this? Do you know what kind of hours I put in? Do you know we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. who gave you hours? <laughs> who gave you a mind to think and a body to work? Who gave you a, a life where you were able and capable and it was possible for you to work? So it's like, wait a minute now, let's, let's not just trust God with the things that we have no other options. What Jesus is saying is I want to be Lord of all. Actual version of the Bible. <laughs> Proverbs 3, verse five and six, it says this, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. I love love this, as a matter of fact, because this is where it leads us to. Some of us, we're not at all, and we're hoping you consider. Some of us, we're partially surrendered to the Lord, and I'm here to challenge you today. I know we, we talked about worship and knowing God and peace. We talked about some really cool stuff for three weeks, and then I throw the bomb at you this week. But this is where we really all want to be, is the fully surrendered life. What's funny is, is that, that word, acknowledge God in all your ways, it's a Hebrew word, it's the Hebrew word, yada. Everybody say yada. You know, like if somebody, you know, you're telling somebody, you know, yada, yada, yada. It's like a Seinfeld episode, I think. It's a Hebrew word, yada. So the word acknowledge is kind of a poor translation. If you wanted to correct it in your Bible, that would be okay. The correct translation for yada, let me put it like this. It's the same word that we use where it says biblically that Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived. It is that same word yada, which means this. It means to know someone intimately, relationally, and experientially. This isn't like, I'm going to think about God next time I make a decision. I'm just going to think about God. No, 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 no. This is to know God. As you trust in him with all your heart, as you acknowledge him on all your ways, it literally means to know him in all your ways. So my question is this, is do you know God in your parenting? You know God in your moral decisions. Do you know God in your dating? Do you know God with your finances? Do you know God? Because isn't that where we really, at the end of the day, isn't that why we don't surrender? It's because at the end of the day, we're just not sure if we trust God. I don't like not being in control, I don't know that I can trust God. I'm afraid of what he'll do, I don't trust God. I can do it better, I don't trust God. And the reason why you don't trust God is because you don't know God. Because to know him is to love him and to love him is to trust him. And that's where all of life really hangs. As a matter of fact, last scripture, the Bible says in Matthew chapter seven, and Jesus challenges this exact idea that we're talking about. He says in Matthew chapter seven, verse twenty-one, and these are some kind of like, what? Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," everybody say, "Lord," is that what we're talking about—the lordship of Jesus, Him having supreme authority over our lives? He says, "Not everyone who just says it, who claims it, will enter the kingdom of heaven." But only the one who actually does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, here it comes again. Didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons and do miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I don't know you. Away from me, you evildoers. Did you notice the difference there? Is that one? People were claiming and claiming and claiming and saying, "Look at what! Look at what I did! I did some stuff." I mean, because in their day, that's what they would have said. In our day, we just said, "But did you see how I went to church? Do you know my parents? Do you know the you know like oh, I gave some. You know when the little dude was outside with the bell. I mean, I put some money in that little bucket. Didn't you see? I had some good deeds." And Jesus saying, "You missed the point. You missed it all." Because all of that should flow out of you knowing me. Again, I told you this earlier, the whole point of the gospel was not to get you out of hell or get you into heaven, but it was to get you with God, that you might know God. That is the meaning of all of life. John 17, verse three, it says this, it says, this is what eternal life really is, that, you, that they may know you God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. That's it. That is the purpose and meaning of all of life. It is that you may know God. Because once you know God, to know him is to love him. And to love him is to trust him. And then all of life is put together. So here's my question for you. This is the penetrating question that we all have to ask ourselves today. Where is Jesus not Lord in my life? Because isn't it true that most of us, we want to live the fully surrendered life, but we kind of hold on to that one thing. We got that one area that we're just not sure that we're willing to let go of. I'll close with this illustration. There was a Russian Tsar who wanted to marry a Greek princess. And they would do this back then to make alliances and form alliances and build strength in the kingdom to have political things work out well. And so the Tsar of Russia wanted to marry the Greek princess, but the Greek princess was Christian Orthodox. And so the, the king said to him, he said, well, here's the deal, you can marry my daughter, but you must be baptized as a Christian he goes, okay, yeah, that's, that's no problem, I'll do that. And so, but, but when the Tsar went to Greek, he came with his, his best and his brightest soldiers. And so when they were there, they said, well, we want to be baptized like you. Because it was a thing of honor for them to do what the king was doing. And so sure enough, they said, we all want to do it. We want to be baptized with you. And the priest said, you can't, you're mercenaries. You'd have to give up being a soldier for you to be in the Greek Orthodox Church. And so they thought about it. They might have taken consensus Maybe they voted on it, I don't know But here's what they did They all went out into a lake All 100, 200 of these soldiers And they pulled their sword out And they held it up into the air And then were baptized Except for their arm And their sword Which was sticking up out of the water How ridiculous is that To think about a whole bunch of soldiers 100, 200 soldiers out in the big lake Getting baptized like this And what they were in essence saying is this well, Jesus, you got my heart, and you got some of me, and you got this part of me, and I really don't want to go to hell. That sounds bad. And I really want to go to heaven. That sounds like a good treat. But I cannot give you this. What is the area of your life that you refuse to surrender to Christ? Because I want to I help you out, okay, here. That is the thing that is limiting you from reaching your fullest potential. That is the thing that is keeping you from knowing God the most intimately. That is what is keeping you from having the most abundant life in God possible. See, the Bible says that Jesus comes to earth in this Matthew chapter 2 story. He comes as the six pounds, eight ounce baby Jesus. But the Bible says that he comes back as a conquering king in his second return. And he is known as the king of kings and as the Lord of lords. Let's pray this morning. Bible says in Romans, it's this real interesting scripture as you kind of remain quiet in that moment. It says this, it says, for we don't live ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to the honor of the Lord. And if we die, it's to the honor of the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. I wanna encourage you this morning. You're all living because you can all hear me. You're alive. And when Jesus offers you that incredible gift of salvation and you say yes, he's asking you to give up everything. Whether you live or whether you die, you belong to the Lord. And it is only when you surrender to the Lordship of Christ that you will truly know him and truly find abundant life. And so God, we pray this morning, Lord God, we pray that you would make it clear. I I, I think we all know. I think as as the message went out, Lord God, there were things that came to our mind, there were things that came up in our heart, and we knew what it was that wasn't surrendered. I want you to take 60 seconds on your own and and have your own little prayer. You say, that's me, Todd. I know I'm I'm partially surrendered. I trust in the Lord with part of my heart. I think about him sometimes, but typically I try to make my own path straight. Then right now, in the here in the moment, I want you to have a prayer. I want you to have a prayer of forgiveness and repentance confession, saying, God, this is the thing that I've been holding on to. I give it to you. I don't want it anymore. I don't want to do this on my own anymore. I want to trust you. I want to know you in this area of my life. I want to let it go. I'm telling you, until you let it go, it will keep you bound. The very thing that you think you will have control of, I'm telling you, it actually has control over you. I don't know about you, but when I walk through my life in my mind and I think about the different seasons of my life, I think about the different times where I didn't surrender something to Christ and that thing I hadn't yet given up, or I was too aloof and wasn't even thinking about it yet, and I wasn't even aware of it yet. You know what I find and when I look at my life's journey? I find that every place and every arena of my life where I wasn't trusting Christ, it eventually ended up damaged. It eventually ended up lost. It eventually ended up with me a little bit unhappy and dissatisfied. I'm telling you, the greatest life found is a life underneath, not President Jesus, King Jesus, who is Lord of all, whether we think so or not. He is going to be Lord of all. I pray and hope that you will trust him with that. And so, Father, we pray, God, as we close out this service, Lord God, that we would know you that Lord God, that in knowing you, we would love you, and in loving you, we would trust you, God. We pray that you would invade our hearts and minds, Lord God, in a way that only you can do. The Holy Spirit, you would flow into our lives, Lord God, that you begin to show us things, reveal us. God, help us to understand, help us to know you, God. Father, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Can we-